0: How's it going, folks? We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've spent the last two sessions going over the topic of forgiveness. And believe it or not, we're going to cover it again in this session, only this time we're going to address a parable that Jesus gave, and it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, the reason why we set this aside for some special time, although I don't think the podcast is going to be that long. We set it aside here because, folks, people take this parable and they think if you are not as forgiving to others as God is to you, God'll revoke your salvation and send you straight to hell. And if you take this parable, just read it. That's how it looks. But, folks, when you put it back in its context, that's not what it's saying. So I'm glad we we spent as much time as we did recently building the foundation for the context. My gosh, two and a half hours of context. Uh, In session 30, we went through Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, in which Jesus pointed out that reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. He laid out the groundwork for how we're to be reconciled with fellow believers if they have wronged us. There's conditions set. And if those conditions are not met, we're to be set free from the relationship. If a brother in Christ has wronged us, we're to address it, but do it privately. We go to them, address what's going on, and Jesus says if they listen to you, then you've gained your brother. In other words, you've won back fellowship, you've straightened out the problem, whatever it was. But if there's a wrong that's been done and they will not listen to you, then you take one or two more. So that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, just in case you're part of the problem. But if you're not part of the problem, if they are the problem, and if they still won't listen, then get everybody involved. But then Jesus sets us free from any obligation after that. He says, if they still won't listen, then let them be unto you as a heathen. In other words, they're not your problem anymore. And then in session 31, we covered Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 22 in which Jesus confirmed the authority that he just gave to us, the freedom to do this, by saying, Whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree concerning anything that you ask, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. For wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I'm right there in the midst of them. Well, Peter's listening to all of this, And I'm sure he likes what he's hearing, but he's noticed something that Jesus has not addressed. What about the sin debt? Whenever somebody commits a sin, whether it's a sin against me or God or whoever, it creates a sin debt. Forgiveness requires atonement for the sin that's been committed. And all throughout the Old Testament, rules for atonement were laid out. It always required blood. So Peter brings that up. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? The priests had a rule for three. Sort of a three strikes and you're out kind of thing. Since Peter probably had a little idea about the symbolism behind numbers and seven always represented something that was complete, he thought he would impress his master. Now, we don't know if that's true. That's just what a lot of people think, and I think that probably has something to do with it. But Jesus says, no, no, not seven. I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, folks, right here, this is where you know Peter probably had his mouth fall to the floor because they're probably thinking, where are we going to get enough blood to pay for all that atonement? You and I know what he's talking about because we've seen how the story ends. But they didn't. Earlier, he's told everybody, you're going to have to drink my blood. They had no idea what he was talking about. Some of them thought he meant it literally, and they walked away in disgust. He told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And they just walked away, shook their heads, thought, that's it. We've entered the twilight zone. We're not here to listen to any more of this. But Peter and the twelve, they, they all stayed, but they still don't know what it means. So Jesus is continuing to drop little hints here and there so that when they finally see everything happen in front of them, it'll all make sense. Earlier at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you're to pray, ask the Father to forgive you of your sins in the same way that you forgive others. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. What in the world does that mean? None of that makes any sense, folks, until after you see what happens at the cross. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to not only cover all of my debts made against God the Father, but all debts made against me. Now, this isn't automatic. You have to put them there Just as our sins were put on the cross when we got saved, we have to put the debts that people accrue against us under the cross. And we covered every bit of that in our last session, session 31, if you're interested. We spent 90 minutes talking about it, explaining exactly what that means, giving all kinds of examples and scenarios. If you're interested in that, check it out, session 31. But that's the context for the parable that we're going to get into in this session. Jesus laid out conditions for reconciliation when that's necessary, when it must be done a certain way, when it can't be, and what you're supposed to do then. Peter's all on board. do not have a problem with any of that, except what about the debt? So Peter asked him, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother if he offends me? Seven times, Jesus says, not seven times, but seventy times seven times. Verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And folks, that was a very impressive number for that time. In today's economy, we're talking millions if not billions of dollars. Verse 25, But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had so that payment would be made. The servant fell down before him, begging and saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, in today's economy we're talking about twenty dollars, and he laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me and I'll pay you all. But he would not. He went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were very grieved. So they came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you?" And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, some of your Bibles say tormentors, until he should pay all that was due to him. And then verse 35, Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now folks, if you're like me, this parable was very comfortable until we got to the end. It turns out there are four interpretations to this parable, and I'm going to give you all four of them so you can make up your own mind. The first interpretation is a general, vague interpretation which basically suggests that since God forgave us of all of our sins, we ought to forgive each other. This first interpretation equates the 10,000 talent debt that was owed to the Master to our sin debt that's made against God the Father. And God obviously forgave us of that debt when he sent his son to the cross to pay for it. So when you compare that massive debt that we owe to God with, say, a $20 debt that's owed by another Christian to us, no matter what the debts are, they're trivial compared to the debt that we owe to God. And therefore, we should be forgiving toward each other. And that's as far as they go with that interpretation. They stop there. They don't address verses 34 and 35 which to me, folks, that's the elephant in the room. The master took this wicked servant and revoked his prior forgiveness, it would seem. Jesus ended this parable with a threat. So my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother of his trespasses. So this first interpretation of the parable, they teach the main idea. Yeah, we're Christians. We're supposed to be forgiving toward each other. But what happens to us if we aren't? Which leads us to the second interpretation of this parable and it agrees with the first interpretation but chooses not to ignore verses 34 and 35. And this second interpretation interprets those two little verses as follows. The wicked servant who had his debt forgiven had that debt reapplied when his forgiveness was revoked and was sent to hell because he did not forgive his fellow servants as his master forgave him. And with that interpretation of the parable comes Jesus' threat. Every one of you Christians out there who believed on Jesus Christ to pay for your sins, you could have that forgiveness revoked if you don't forgive your fellow Christians the way God the Father forgave you. Therefore a Christian can lose their salvation and not be taken to heaven when they die if they lived a life of unforgiveness. That's the second interpretation, and it's widely taught. But that interpretation of this parable does not reconcile with John 3.16. God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. If this wicked servant got saved, received eternal life, and then had it revoked, then John 3.16 cannot be true because you can't say that he had eternal life and call eternal life temporary at the same time. And folks, if that's what happened, he lost it quickly. I mean, he got saved, and then the first sin he committed, he lost it. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus talking, said, Verily, verily, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed already from death into life. Jesus is saying you don't have to wait until you're dead to get eternal life. It begins the moment you start believing. If eternal life can be revoked, it's not eternal. is the point I'm trying to get. However, others would disagree and say that eternal life may be eternal, but keeping eternal life is dependent upon certain conditions of obedience. Well, let's see if that's true. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Why is that a big deal? Because this wicked servant was a man. When you get saved, you are put in Jesus' hand, and you are a man. If no man can pluck you out of Jesus' hand, that means you can't jump out. You can try, but Jesus is not going to just sit there with his hand open, let you walk around and jump off. If that were the case then there would be no point in being in Jesus's hand to begin with but guess what you're not only in Jesus's hand you're in the father's hand as well John 10:29. Jesus said my father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand so you're in the son's hand you're also in the father's hand and Jesus said as far as both are concerned No man can pluck them out. And you are a man, so you cannot pluck yourself out of their hands. If you go back to John chapter 1, look at verse 12 and 13. That was John's introduction to the whole gospel. He said, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood and nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, mankind's power did not do this. It was of God. It was a spiritual rebirth. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you're born again, you can't become unborn. You can't change that. It's irreversible. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, Paul said it's by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You cannot break that seal, folks. That's why they call it a seal. Ephesians 4.30 says we're sealed unto the day of redemption. If you can break that seal before the day of redemption, then that verse cannot be true. Titus three verse five. Paul speaks of our salvation saying that we got saved not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's telling you, you couldn't lose your salvation if you wanted to. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And folks, that's just scratching the surface. If I wanted to, I could devote two hours to Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse promoting the fact that Jesus died to pay for the sins of everyone, that those who receive that salvation are sealed, they're reborn, they're recreated, and it's a new beginning without an end. So with all of that in contrast, folks, that second interpretation of this parable cannot possibly be true. Something else is going on here. and This is where we come to interpretations three and four, and I believe the truth is one of these two interpretations, although I don't know which one. I'm going to give them both to you and just let you make up your own mind. Both of them have a lot of things going for them. They both have a few problems. View number three is probably the most bold it suggests that the wicked servant was never even saved and they have some pretty compelling evidence to prove it. If you look at verse 26, it says that when the servant was confronted by his master about this debt, the servant fell down before him begging and saying, master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He doesn't offer any repentance and he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks him for time for patience until he can pay him back. Now folks, the request itself is absurd because he owed his master 10,000 talents. One talent was a year's wage back then, so 10,000 talents, I mean, that's absurd. The entire revenue of Galilee at the time was around 300 talents. This guy owed his master 10,000 talents. That's more than 33 times the revenue of Galilee. So to beg for patience and time to pay him back it's a blatant insult to the master's intelligence. Both the servant and the master know that there's not enough time left in the universe to pay off that debt. And then in verse 27 it says, The master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt, which means that he personally covered the debt himself. Now the parable doesn't address where the master got the resources to cover this immense debt, but apparently it exists. The master had access to whatever it was he needed in order to cover that debt himself, and he's offering it to the wicked servant. He's forgiving the debt. But judging from the servant's behavior, we don't see any evidence that he's accepted the master's provision for his debt. If anything, his actions show evidence to the contrary. If you owed somebody billions of dollars, wouldn't you also be shaking the collars and roughing up people who owed you $10 here and $20 there? You got a house note to make. You don't have any idea where the money's coming from. But then all of a sudden you remember, John down the street owes me $20 and Beth on the other street owes me 5 And if I remember correctly, I let my grandmother borrow 50 one time. She never did pay me back. See, that's the behavior of somebody who owes a lot of money and has not recognized the channel in which provision was made. He's trying to raise it up himself. If I owed someone or a corporation or anybody a billion dollars or billions of dollars and the person to which I owed it came to me and said, Josh, don't worry about it anymore. I've got it covered. Your debt's been paid in full. Folks, if I knew that, acknowledge that, that would completely change my outlook on life. I owed billions of dollars. Not anymore. That's like being given billions of dollars. That would completely change the way I look at everything. So if somebody comes up to me, somebody comes up and says, Josh, that $20 that I borrowed from you that I told you I was going to pay you back, it's, it's going to be a while. It might be, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Matter of fact, here's another 20. That's the behavior of somebody who knows that they've been forgiven this immense debt. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that not only have they been forgiven of the debt, they're very grateful and it's completely changed their life. So that's the evidence that people of this third interpretation have to present their case that this wicked servant was never saved to begin with. And I understand why they go there because at the end of the parable this wicked servant winds up being what seems to be cast into hell. And we all know that a servant of God does not wind up in hell. So how do you reconcile this? Well, you look for evidence that suggests that maybe he was never saved to begin with, and there's plenty of it in there. But there's a few flaws in that interpretation. In verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him, one what? One of his servants. One was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. Now, because he owes the master a debt, we assume that this guy isn't saved, that this is someone who's lost, who owes the master a debt, just like we all owed God a debt before we got saved. So that's how most people interpret this portion of the parable. They say this guy is being confronted with his sin debt before he gets saved. The only problem with that thinking, though, is this guy is already called a servant, This parable begins in the kingdom, and this guy is a servant of the master of that kingdom. Verse 23, Jesus said he was going to settle accounts with his servants. One of the servants was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. He's already a servant. Can someone who's lost, someone who is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, someone who is not saved, can that person be called a servant of God? No, throughout the entire New Testament, they're called slaves to sin. They're not slaves of God, they're slaves to sin. Other places are a little more graphic, they're called sons of Satan. So you can't say that the wicked servant of this parable is not saved, because he's addressed as a servant in this kingdom at the very beginning of the parable. And in verse 31, the faithful servants of the kingdom are called his fellow servants. If this wicked servant was never saved, you couldn't call them his fellow servants. And all throughout the parable, as wicked as the servant is, he acknowledges the king in this parable to be his master all throughout the parable. Do the lost consider Jesus Christ to be their master? No they do not. And At the end of the parable, verse 34, it says his master was angry. In other words, he's still his master. It says his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then in verse 35, Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In other words, you, Peter, you, John, you, Mark, you, Matthew. See, trying to make out like the wicked servant was never saved to begin with doesn't really do anything for us. We're still held accountable because Jesus says, My heavenly Father will do to you what was done to this wicked servant. If you from your heart do not forgive your brother his trespasses, period. So whether the wicked servant was saved or not doesn't matter. Matthew was saved. Peter was saved. Mark was saved. John was saved. So what's going on here? Which leads us to the fourth interpretation of this parable. And the more I investigate it, folks, I I think it's right on. It's the only interpretation that doesn't damage the text of the parable, and it's also the only interpretation that I know of that fits in context with everything that's been discussed so far. This kingdom parable is not about getting saved. It's assumed that all of the servants in the kingdom are already saved. The servants debt of 10,000 talents. Notice in the parable it doesn't say how the debt was covered. It didn't have to. It was covered before the parable started. He's already a servant in the kingdom. But there is an issue of discipline involved. This wicked servant is saved, but he's living in sin. A servant of God cannot lose their salvation, but they do not have a license to sin. He's being brought before his master. He's being convicted of his sin, not as a lost sinner, but as a wicked servant. Now, for whatever reason, the idea of a loving father disciplining his children bothers some Christians. They want God to just leave them alone. Folks, this does not mean God expects you to be perfect. He knows you're a child growing up. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. So, we're not talking about mistakes. We're talking about deliberate, willful acts of disobedience in which you know you're wrong. And even then, God is very patient and very kind and very soft spoken before he levels discipline that's why this wicked servant owes 10,000 talents worth he's about to be disciplined by his master the servant knows it which is why he then falls down before him master have patience with me I'll pay you all in other words I'll make it right it's already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and because of that he's able to forgive him so, after confronting the servant with his wrongdoing, the discipline that's come in his way is stayed, is overlooked, is set aside out of pity, compassion, and love. How many of you, good parents out there, out of pity, compassion, and love, postponed discipline that your kids badly needed? And then judging from your kids' behavior later after that, you realize, I should have spanked them, should have taken them to the room. Jesus has been addressing, how do brothers in Christ treat each other concerning wrongs that have been committed against them? All throughout the passage that we've been leading up to here, a debt is synonymous with a wrong that's been committed. This wicked servant wronged his master. And judging from the size of the debt, he wronged him a lot. Once you're saved, can you be a Christian and wrong your master? Absolutely. Otherwise there would be no need for 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 and 10, where it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Think back to what started this whole conversation in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. We covered this in session 29. Jesus said, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek the one that went astray? And if he finds it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more over that sheep than of the ninety-nine that never went astray. Just as it is with that sheep, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So folks, the background, the context of everything that we're getting into here began with the subject of a sheep of the flock that's gone astray. What someone might call a wicked servant. Immediately after the parable of the lost sheep is when Jesus said, When a brother offends you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A brother, meaning this is somebody who's saved. When a brother transgresses against you, go to him, acknowledge their wrong, their sin. To do what? To forgive them? No, you can do that by yourself with the blood of Jesus Christ. The point of going after the one who wronged you is to win them back into fellowship. The good shepherd of the lost sheep could have just said, Oh, well, I forgive him but that wasn't enough. I want to bring him back. He's out there wandering around lost. He's suffering because of the elements. He's not protected under my care. He's lost fellowship with the other sheep. He's lost fellowship with me. So if a brother in Christ has lost fellowship with you because of a wrong they've done, seek them out, not to forgive them. You can do that by yourself, but to win them back into fellowship. Jesus said, if he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. If he will not listen, then get one or two more. One or two more what? Fellow servants, fellow sheep, brothers in Christ. If he still won't listen, take it to the whole assembly. Get all the sheep involved, all fellow servants. But if he will not listen to the whole assembly, what did Jesus say? Let them be unto you as a heathen. To which in session 30 we found out, Paul took that to mean hand them over to Satan as though they're not saved. Everybody is subject to the tortures and torments of Satan as a member of this planet. When you're saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, you're given spiritual protection. If you choose to live in sin and live in the flesh, that spiritual protection is being cast aside. So in order to get your spiritual protection back up, God suggests that we hand people over to Satan so that they will use their spiritual reflexes to protect themselves. And we covered every bit of that in session 30. The Corinthian church had someone living in sin. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved. When you read 2 Corinthians, you find out that it brought about the appropriate repentance. He was saved. Another example is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where Paul told Timothy that, quote, some individuals have made shipwreck of their faith, and I delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, these people are not lost. These are Christians. These are servants of the kingdom. But folks, when a person gets saved, they're reborn. And what are people reborn as? Babies. Infants grow up to be toddlers. Toddlers become Kids. Kids need divine discipline. And folks, don't let the word discipline scare you. This is an act of love, not an act of judgment, not an act of wrath. A loving parent disciplines their child. It's the way to protect them, to grow them up. When a lost person is saved, all of their sins, past, present, and future, are put upon the cross, and all of them are paid for. But God does not make the cross a license to sin. He's a loving Father, and part of that love means He will give us needed discipline when necessary. He will postpone it as long as He can. But His love for us demands that He disciplines us when we need it. And with that comes our responsibility. As brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we deal with each other when we find ourselves in need of divine discipline? Somebody said, well, that's God's problem. Yeah, but what if the offense is being committed by one Christian against another? That's what all that was about, talking about approaching the brother, so on and so forth. wasn't about forgiveness, but about correction. Then in Matthew 18, verses 18 to 22, Jesus then turned his attention over to the subject of forgiveness itself because Peter brought it up. And that's a totally different subject altogether. Peter said, Lord, how often shall my brother offend me and I forgive him? In other words, when does mercy stop? When does love stop? And Jesus gives an answer that basically suggests there is no limit. And then Jesus gives this parable which brings the subject of both forgiveness and divine discipline into the same subject. Addressing Peter's question but bringing the focus back to where Jesus wanted it. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with who? His servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one servant was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. This is the lost sheep that went astray. This is a fellow servant living in sin. Verse 25, but as he wasn't able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had so that payment be made. In other words, it's time for divine discipline. He's being convicted by his master of his debt, his wrongdoing, to which the servant fell down before him verse 26 begging and saying master in other words he still acknowledges who's god master have patience with me and i will pay you all this is not about the sin debt he knows the blood of jesus christ took care of all that this is about correcting the wrong that's been done A lot of Christians out there who are not worried about going to hell anymore because they know they're saved, they know the blood of Jesus Christ has taken care of all their sins, but they're living a lifestyle that they know that their heavenly Father is not going to allow them to get away with forever. Verse 26, the servant fell down before him, begging and saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. In other words, whatever it was that he did, he got found out. God's confronted him. I don't know if it's a porn collection, he's been cheating on his wife, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, he's been confronted with it, and he's at a crossroads now. What's he going to do about it? And judging from the size of the debt, he's been confronted about this before, 10,000 talents. But apparently this was it. The servant fell down before him, begging, saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. He's not going to be disciplined at this time. And the wrong that he's been done is forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ has already covered it. So now the master's going to wait and see what he does. Verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Nothing compared to the debt that he owed his master. And he laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not. He went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So here's a guy who was living in sin. This is a Christian, a servant of God, living in sin. And it was a big one, too. It's 10,000 talents worth. It would be like this wicked servant was committing adultery against his wife He's been slipping around for three or four years keeping it a secret. God's been convicting him over and over and over again. No repentance. So finally God puts him in a situation where he's at a crossroads. Say the other woman threatens to make a phone call to the wife. Or maybe she's faked a pregnancy. Or maybe he thinks somebody at church saw him with the other woman. There could be a million situations. All of a sudden he's confronted with the depravity of his sin big time. And there he is standing before the throne of god with everything in him wanting to say god what do i do when he already knows what the first thing he needs to do is the christian living in sin with sweat running down his back tells god the father i repent of what i've been doing it was wrong i'm sorry it ends today and then god honors that repentance so he's in the clear the guy cuts loose of his girlfriend, decides he's going to be devoted to his wife, goes home, and he finds his wife giggling while reading a smutty romance novel, and he becomes furious. He rips the book from her hands, calls her a slut, accuses her of committing adultery, being a bad wife. Meanwhile, God's thinking, "Dude, I just forgave you for four years of adultery. Where's the compassion? Where's the pity?" Where's the love? And folks, the gap between a wife reading a smutty romance novel and a husband committing actual adultery for four years, the gap between those two things is nothing compared to the gap between a 100 denarii and 10,000 talents. We're talking 20 bucks versus billions of dollars. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, in other words, other Christians Who know what's right and wrong, who see what's going on, and most likely a lot of them know about the adultery that he was committing but never said anything. They go to their master. You know what that means, folks? If you're a Christian and you're living in sin and you know other Christians, not only does God know what's going on, they're bringing you and your situation up to God in prayer. You think you're getting away with it. You're not getting away with anything verse 31 when his fellow servants saw what had happened they were very grieved so they came and told their master all that had been done then his master after he had called him said to him you wicked servant I forgave you of all that debt because you begged me shouldn't you have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you the master said you wicked servant and he handed him over to the torturers until he paid all that was due And then Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In other words, folks, of all the sins that a Christian can commit and be disciplined for, the one you better watch out for is unforgiveness. And the reason why, folks, is because God forgives us daily. When we think of God forgiving us for all our sins, we think of the cross being 2,000 years ago. Well, yes, the cross was 2,000 years ago, but your sins are a daily continuing thing. Jesus said paid in full, but from your perspective, you're still raising the debt. That's an act of mercy. That's an act of grace. We don't deserve any of it. Most of what God forgives us for, we don't even know we're doing. A lot of it we do know. If you're a Christian who likes to bend the rules, accrue a 10,000-talent debt before God the Father, doing whatever you want to do, making up excuses for it, coming up with your own reasoning for it, basically pushing the limits of God's forgiveness and grace while being judgmental and condescending and short with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, God will not stand for that. God the Father will turn you over to the torturers until you pay all that's due. And folks, I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. I've seen it over and over again. The wicked servant in this parable is saved, I believe, folks, but he is being punished by tormentors for the debt of unforgiveness. The 10,000 talent debt are debts that he has committed in the flesh since he was saved. He's choosing to live in the flesh. And that's why he's being confronted by his father. He hasn't lost his citizenship in the kingdom, but he's not walking in the spirit, which is in love and in truth. And the pivotal point of this parable, which has been hidden by Satan because of all this debate about eternal security, the pivotal point is that if a Christian has not learned how to forgive his brother, then that Christian will live a life in torment. They're saved, but they won't act saved. They won't feel saved because their life will be subjected to the torment that Jesus spoke of here. And before you get worried, unforgiveness is not suffering a wrong that's been committed. So if you're suffering pain from a previous hurt, that's not unforgiveness. If you want to know what unforgiveness is, go back and listen to sessions 30 and 31 because we covered all of that in great detail. So anyway, that's the fourth interpretation of this parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, that he's a Christian all throughout the parable, but he's living in sin, and his master confronts him with this debt. He doesn't exactly repent of it, but he acknowledges it, says he's going to do something about it, and the master forgives him. But then the servant goes out and judges his fellow servants for sins committed against him that are petty and insignificant microscopic compared to the sins that he just got forgiven for. So the master sees the hypocrisy and hands him over to disciplining tormentors. So that's the fourth interpretation of the parable of the wicked servant, the unforgiving servant. I'm not 100% certain, folks, that this is the accurate interpretation, but of the interpretations that are available, it seems to me to be the one that fits the most. But uh, you take these interpretations, read the scripture yourself, pray about it, come to your own conclusions. The parable of the unforgiving servant. And that's where we're going to leave it for now, folks. Until next time, we are out of here. You take care.